Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded on Wednesday, March 4th, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. There has been a ton going on in the world of retail, Amazon, and e-commerce, so tonight we are going to focus on the news. Uh, before we do that, Jason, you, before uh, coronavirus hit, you had done a little bit of traveling, uh, and now I think your wings are probably clipped a little bit, but you were at Etel West. I was. It was a tough duty to go to Palm Desert uh, uh, in the middle of a Chicago uh, snowstorm. Tough one. Did you uh, bring the family or you left them back there to deal with that while you were you were sunbathing? I did. (laughs) The the family did stay at home. They they were certainly welcome to attend. Um, But I think they chose my my four and a half year old certainly did not choose to stay home. (laughs) But uh, Mm -hmm. my my wife chose to stay in Chicago. for uh, her work and life, apparently, are kind of a big deal. Yeah. Uh, well, I have was some big news for you with my son, though, Scott. I'm, I'm kind of depressed. Uh-oh, what? Uh, I feel like uh, my uh, son, my four-and-a-half-year-old son, is turning to the dark side of the force. Everyone goes through a phase. There's uh, the the dark side. Is, uh, there's a little big draw there. Yeah, I, uh, he's he's begging for like Darth Vader and Kylo Ren action figures, and uh, I drove him to school this morning, and we had to sing uh, the Imperial March uh, theme song over and over again. Nice, that's some quality parenting. Yeah, yeah, he it. he totally has it down. As long as he's in the universe and not you're not talking all Star Trekky, then uh, he can be on the dark side. Uh, to my knowledge, he does not know that Star Trek exists yet. Good, good. Uh, but so, yeah, so that aside, uh, I did get to go to Etel West last uh, week, which was a pleasure. L- listeners may already know that because we already published one of the shows from Etel West. Uh, I got to do an interview with Owen Comerford, who's the CEO of Moose Jaw. Uh, so Moose Jaw is a great outdoor apparel retailer uh, that was uh, oddly purchased by Walmart a couple of years ago. Cool, and he's uh, stayed on to run that. Yeah, it's Moose Jaw is famous for their clever and quirky marketing, and Owen is actually the the owner of that marketing. So for a long time, Owen was the CMO and was responsible for a lot of the campaigns that made him famous. And then the uh, Owen's boss, the the CEO, uh, left uh, to go um, run Blue Nile, and uh, Owen was promoted to CEO. So he's. Uh, doing a good job there at Moose Jaw, and then he has uh, a side hustle. Walmart also made him the the sort of uh, general merchandise manager for outdoor for all of Walmart. Cool. Yeah, so that was a good conversation. Um, and they do clever marketing campaigns like uh, if you're afraid to break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend, call us and we'll break up with them for you. <laughs> yeah, and they have a rabid... Uh 
kind of audience that, that rates things and is really into the outdoor stuff and, and uh, really engaged, right? Yeah, yeah. They're super smart about engaging their customers and they, they behind the scenes, they have a really powerful 360 degree view of the customer and all that, all that good stuff. So uh, they definitely have a bunch of best practices Somewhat aided by the fact that they're relatively small prior to their Walmart acquisition. Um, but yeah, so that was a, a great conversation. He gave one of the keynotes, and then uh, we we got him in a conversation. Uh, and then probably next week, we'll publish a conversation I had with Dave Spector, who's one of the co-founders of Third Love, which is a, a highly successful direct-to-consumer um, women's lingerie, primarily bra uh, manufacturer and reseller. And uh, uh, we'll probably talk a little bit more about Third Love uh, in part of the news segment later. Um, but So that's a, a teaser for now. Cool. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's a lot of content at Etail. There's actually multiple tracks going on, so you, you kind of can't go to everything. Um, and I did have some uh, duties uh, to uh, record some podcasts and some other things while we were there. So I didn't get to see everything but a couple of the just quick standouts for me, um, there was a guy who I hadn't seen before who I, I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to mispronounce his name, Robert uh, Petrish, uh, who's a, an industry, the retail industry manager for Facebook. Um, and uh, so he was talking a lot about Instagram checkout, which is uh, a, a topic of interest to me. So he kind of had this interesting framework. He said, hey, at Facebook... We think about these three main uh, phases of the customer journey, the discovery phase, the purchase phase, and the post-purchase phase. And essentially, between Facebook and Instagram, we feel like we dominate at discovery and we're, we're doing well and have a lot of good products in there. But we, we really think like we're deficient in the purchase phase and the post-purchase phase. And so that's a major focus of uh, his effort. And so like through that framework, Instagram checkout is their you know, biggest but still early initiative in purchase. Um, and so he kind of gave a, a Nike case study of Instagram checkout um, where Nike partnered with this uh, uh, Fear of God brand and they launched an issue for Cyber Monday and they sold completely sold out of the shoe in, in one minute. Um, and he sort of highlighted that, that a number of uh, pr- primarily streetwear brands, women's fashion brands, and beauty brands are having a very high degree of success using Instagram checkout. And he announced that they're in the process of expanding that program, which was interesting to me because they, they've been in this beta for a long time and they haven't allowed new new brands into the program. So it was good to hear that they're expanding that program. Um, and then he also pitched something I guess I'm a little more skeptical of, but uh, um, you know he had at least one good case study. Uh, using Facebook Messenger as a post-purchase tool. Um, so the case study there with Sephora has sort of natural language appointment booking through Facebook Messenger. So if you want to book an appointment with a beauty consultant, you can kind of do it using natural language on Facebook Messenger. Um, and he, in his case study, he was saying that um, they have an 11% higher booking rate on Facebook Messenger than they do the Sephora website or any other Sephora touchpoint. Um, so uh, he was kind of pitching it for that. I, uh, To me, like, there's so many communication cha- uh, channels now that there's sort of a signal-to-noise problem across all these channels. But um, that, that was kind of interesting. Uh, 
I got to host a couple panels. Um, so I did a, a direct-to-consumer panel on how uh, brands are uh, able to capture customer data and improve their products and services. And so there were uh, three kind of interesting execs on that panel. Uh, uh, Megan Whitman, who's the chief digital officer at Kapari Beauty. Uh, Kyle Hoff, who is the CEO of a direct-to-consumer furniture company called Floyd, which is kind of the, the online IKEA, if you will. Uh, and Ankit Patel, who's the VP of merchandising at Boxed. And I was super sad that you weren't there because I know uh, Boxed plays a major role in uh, stocking the Get Spiffy um, snack uh, shelf. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and so they they had some sort of interesting insights. Uh, Ankit talked a lot about uh, a Boxed own private label and how they're able to leverage the uh, all the customer data they get and feedback they get. Um, to sort of shape the the offering for for their private label product, so that was interesting. Um, and then I did kind of a, a, a predict the future panel um, with with two guys, uh, Mike Apostle, who's the co-founder and CEO of a a meal company called Factor, um, which is surprisingly big, much bigger than I realized. They sell a hundred thousand meals a week, um, so these are like just reheat and eat meals at home for whatever, whatever your nutritional, infer, you know, interest or diet is. Um, and, uh, they, it, it's super interesting cause they do a bunch of, uh, post meal surveys that get a really high response rate. And so they, they do a lot of like micro data about which meals customers liked and what they liked and didn't like. And they, they really use that to shape their, their future meal planning uh, and then uh, Bob Bennett, who's the the VP and general merchant uh, general manager of consumer engagement at Petco, um, and uh, Bob had some interesting insights. But I'm also super nice to Bob because Petco is based in San Diego, and so I have an eye towards my retirement job being some kind of e-commerce gig in San Diego. Yes, hopefully Bob's listening. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I got to give a keynote on direct-to-consumer on the third day, and so I took the opportunity to totally poo-poo the direct-to-consumer channel. Whoa. Uh, so I won't, I, won't, I won't recap the whole thing. It was a short presentation, um, but, you know, there are all these, these direct-to-consumer uh, presenters, and there's all these case studies about these direct-to-consumer companies. So I kind of um, highlighted the fact that, hey – uh, there are all these different companies that track direct-to-consumer companies. So I picked one, the, the Interactive uh, Advertising Bureau. So it's, it's a trade organization of digital advertisers called uh, – usually they go by IAB. And IAB publishes this list called the IAB 250, which is uh, their p opinion, the 250 most important direct-to-consumer companies to watch. Uh, so I pulled all 250 companies – and said, hey, how many of those companies have sold at least $100 million a year um, ever? And how many of the 250 would you guess are over $100 million in sales? 25. I, I warned you in rehearsal that you'd have to guess. Uh, 25, totally reasonable guess, but way too high. Seven of the 250 companies have sold over $100 million a year. And only, Holy cow. Yeah, and only two have sold a billion dollars a year. Uh, and those two, by the way, are Stitch Fix and Chewy, both of whom primarily sell other people's stuff. So th they are technically direct to consumer and they do both have their own brand, but they mostly are an online wholesaler, not a, 
a vertically integrated direct-to-consumer company. And one of them, Chewy, is hugely successful on the revenue side, but wildly unprofitable. So of these 150 companies, one company that sells a billion dollars a year profitably, um, and you know, a bunch of these companies are unicorns from a private equity valuation standpoint, but but very few of them have have meaningful market share at the moment. Not to say they won't ever, but it like it, it's sometimes easy to get caught up in the in the hype uh, and sort of overvalue where they're at right now. Did you know that Chewy and Stitch Fix sell other people's stuff direct to consumer? I did know that, but so does Walmart. It's right there. It's right there. <laughs> it is still direct to consumer. Yeah. I mean, isn't every retailer direct to consumer? Mm, yeah. Staples has a B2B piece. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> direct to business. Cool. Seems like you were kind of running the show over there. You're going to be like the, uh, you're going to be on putting together the whole thing here before we know it. Yeah. If, if they're listening, winter events in Palm Desert, I'm in. <laughs> Said the Chicago guy. Exactly. Cool. Uh, sounds like it was a fun trip and you got to flex the old speaking muscles, which is always good. Uh, it wouldn't be a Jason Scott show if we didn't kick off with a little bit of Amazon news. Amazon news. Your margin is their opportunity. So let's start with your favorite topic, Jason, which is grocery. There's been, I've seen a lot of uh, interesting topics around grocery, and I saw you actually wrote an article about this in Forbes. So give us an update on what's going on in the Amazon grocery land. Yeah, yeah. This was an awesome uh, week for grocery. Uh, so a, a couple of things came out. Uh, last week, right before Etail, Amazon uh, opened a new Amazon Go format in Seattle. It's called Amazon Go Grocery. Um, and so uh, traditional Amazon Go stores are these just walk out stores. You you go in, you take your products, you walk out, and Amazon uses cameras to track you and charge you for what you took. Um, I've always said that while, while they're disguised as convenience stores, that Amazon Go stores are really... Um, restaurants because they're primarily selling ready to eat food for business people to have for lunch. Um, and in fact, secretly, if you dive into all of Amazon's uh, propaganda for Go, like they call them restaurants. Uh, so this is a new format that uses that same just walk out technology for an actual grocery store. So it's it's quite a bit larger. It's five times larger than a, a Go store. So a Go store is about uh, or. Five is an exaggeration. A ghost store is about 1,500 to 2,000 square foot. This is a 5,000 square foot store. Um, this this store has about 10,000 SKUs. Um, so five times as many SKUs as a, a ghost store had. Um, and the SKUs include things like uh, a butcher uh, shop with with uh, meats and uh, uh, organic produce that, that Go didn't have and that, you know, potentially are, are harder for the camera to recognize. Um, so a big evolution in the Amazon Go technology and a new grocery concept for Amazon. So that alone would have been super exciting. Um, and I would put just one caveat on that. While it's a lot bigger than a traditional Go store, it actually still is small by grocery store standards. 
So that's not a huge amount of SKUs, and that's not a big footprint for an American grocery store. That's about the size of a of a typical European grocery store. Um, and uh, I was super curious how they were going to do things like sell bulk items. Like, how do you sell apples by the pound um, using the Just Walk Out technology? And the answer is you don't. Uh, they're they're selling everything by the eaches. So wow. Yeah, so you pay per apple or per banana rather than by weight. So, in, so interesting, uh, like a shift they obviously did for their convenience, not the customers. But it'll be interesting to see if customers like that alternative model or not. And some some chatter where some guy says he defeated the camera. Did you see that? Yeah, and uh, uh, I almost wondered if he's a podcast listener. So a ton of journalists got invited to the grand opening. Um, and one of the things that I always pointed out about, hey, one of the problems in scaling Amazon Go is there's things you can't do in this camera-based store, like have a public restroom. And the reason you can't is because you can't put cameras in the restroom. And so then you have a problem. Someone scans their way into the store using the mobile app, and so you know who they are. And then you're tracking them around the store with the cameras, and you keep track of what they bought um, and then, you know, when they walk out, you charge them for those purchases. Well, if you let them walk into a public restroom in the middle of that shopping trip, um, you lose the your identification mark for that customer. And so, you know, one of the problems you have is you go to a bigger store and it's more ex- higher expectation that you're going to have a restroom. So it turns out this Amazon Go uh, store does have a restroom. And so this clever journalist figured out, yeah, I'll walk into the restroom. I'll uh, I'll carry two jackets with me. And so I'll change jackets in the restroom. So I come out with a different color jacket. And sure enough, by doing that, he was able to steal all his items and wasn't charged for them. Mm. Um, was he arrested? No, no. I mean, uh, oh, well, at least not at the time of publishing his article. Um, I always thought that I always assumed the solution would be that you have to leave the store to use the restroom and then you have to scan your way back in with your phone. Um, yeah. But uh, so that that's a interesting little little uh, edge case. Another edge case that uh, it seems like they're they're trying to solve um, is in a ghost store. You can only shop alone. So if you walk in with your family uh, they they each have to uh, have a their own app or have a separate cart. Um, and now with this Go Grocery Store, you can actually scan in multiple people, and then any items taken by any of those people, uh, you get charged for. And group shopping actually is a big deal, so it makes sense. So the jacket thing, can't they use eventually face recognition would do that, or is there a reason they're not doing faces for for privacy reasons? Uh, the real answer is I don't know. Um, there, you know, you could imagine that, uh, like I imagine they are using face and they're, they're like hashing it and, you know, just using it for that, that session. So they're not storing it or doing anything with it. Um, but, uh, they just don't force you to give like a face profile. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're naturally walking through the store. So they have to be able to track you from multiple angles. And so I imagine they use a lot of attributes of your appearance to track you. And obviously, if your back is to all the cameras, uh, the uh, facial recognition wouldn't work. So they can't exclusively rely on facial recognition. But you scan your app. It's logged in. So they know if, let's say they do scan your face. Um, they know who Jason is. And you're kind of assuming they don't store it. But maybe they do. Sure. And I, I don't know. Yeah. I, uh, I don't to know. These creepy. are all educate. Like, again, you can imagine <laughs> ways they could solve it. Right. So it's. It's not a deal breaker. It's just harder. 
Um, but so props on Amazon. They're they're moving the concept for further. When they originally invented the idea of a just walk out store, they had a grocery store in mind. And the, with the technology available at the time, it was too hard. Uh, so now it's become easier. They also have said that they've significantly reduced the cost. I imagine it's still super expensive, but I, I believe them that the cost is going down. Um, but I was almost more excited about uh, a much lower profile um, uh, revelation that came out this uh, last week at Amazon. Uh, we've been talking about Amazon opening a a alternative grocery store that's not a Whole Foods grocery store um, that's a full-size grocery store in Los Angeles. And uh, it's been under construction for a while. People have walked by. And then uh, uh, um, I want to say Bloomberg got access to the store and got to visit the store before it opened. And the big surprise to everyone is, oh, there's not a lot of digital innovations, and it mostly is a very traditional grocery store layout. Um, so, so this is a 33,000 square foot store. So that's a legitimate, uh, uh, us, uh, full supermarket. Um, and it was kind of interesting that it was, you know, didn't have a lot of digital shopping innovations in it. Um, uh, I have assumed for a long time that it was going to be lower price point groceries and, and targeted at more value oriented customers than, uh, than Whole Foods, um, but a, uh, a clever blog uh, called Hungry TV, H-N-G-R-Y TV, um, sort of tracked down the architectural plans for this store, and they uncovered something super interesting, that 7,200 square feet of this 33,000-square-foot uh, store um, are dedicated to a micro-fulfillment center. So what this is is... Uh, a robotic grocery picking machine and like the brand name is even on the, the, the floor plan. So this is a Michigan company called Demantic, um, which, which make micro fulfillment centers for grocery stores. And so very clearly this new Amazon concept is going to have a lot of groceries stored in this robotic system that then automatically picks them for the customer. And so we don't know exactly how this will work yet, but, um, one model is customers go to the grocery store, do their own shopping, and take home their groceries. But for deliveries, they use this automated picking system to more cost-effectively pick the orders and deliver them to you. Um, and that alone would be interesting. That That is a huge trend in grocery. Uh, but another alternative would be uh, you shop for certain items yourself in the grocery store where like individual selection is important. So you want to pick your own uh, pork chops and you want to pick your own fresh produce. Um, but you really just want a bag of Oreos and all the bags of Oreos are the same. So there's no reason to push a cart by a Oreo aisle and grab Oreos when you can just like build the list on your phone and have the robot fill the cart for you. So, uh, the fact that this, this, uh, micro fulfillment center is built into this new Amazon store is very interesting. And that to me does make it a much more revolutionary grocery store than maybe the Bloomberg journalists realized when they they got the walkthrough. So I'm, uh, and that store is likely going to open imminently. So I'm super excited about that. And that kind of prompted me to write this article in Forbes about the the great grocery wars and how Amazon, Walmart, and Kroger are are sort of battling for the hearts and mind of 
digital grocery shoppers in the U.S. So I'll put a, a link to my article in the show notes if anyone wants to, to deep dive into what's going on in, in digital grocery right now. Very cool. And uh, in other Amazon news, uh, we're going to talk about coronavirus, but since we're talking about Amazon, they did have a big travel freeze, which was uh, which was interesting. Uh, and then a lot of companies have pre-announced that they're going to have a rough Q1 due to the, the virus. Uh, so for example, a- Apple and Microsoft both pre-announced that they probably would miss their numbers due to um, supply chain issues. Um, and then I don't know why Microsoft would, uh, that was kind of a weird one, I guess. Um, how about uh, any other Amazon news that you've been tracking? Yeah, a few things. Um, so, uh, the, uh, there was a lot of buzz yesterday about another new store format that, a- uh, Amazon opened, uh, journalists found a pop-up store in Seattle that was focused on Amazon basics bedding. Um, so this is like their version of the Casper mattress. Um, and, uh, like that is interesting to me. I actually think the journalists kind of misinterpreted what they were seeing. So, uh, there actually have been, I want to say, uh, five Amazon pop-up stores that have opened in the last three months. And Amazon used to have hundreds of pop-up stores. They famously closed them all. And then they quietly reopened six of them, and uh, five or six of them. And they all have these uh, uh, rotating themes. So one month, the pop-ups might have been about uh, uh, audible books. And the next month, they might have been about... Uh, mama bear food and the current month theme for these pop-up stores is amazon basic bedding and so what i think is new is they added a seventh location for the pop-up which is seattle um so that's kind of interesting one that uh uh is more interesting to me and i know you being a fulfillment geek uh would be excited about is um they also announced that they had opened a new kind of fulfillment center um, and I want to say they've opened four of these. And this is, I'll call it a tweener fulfillment center. Um, this is cl- uh, a fulfillment center that holds 100,000 items uh, closer to population centers. So a, a true Amazon fulfillment center is like a million square feet and holds millions of products. Um, this is a, a, a hundred thousand square foot store that holds a hundred thousand items. Um, and, uh, as a result of these things, they're able to guarantee five hour delivery on a bunch of products. So it's kind of like, uh, Amazon prime now on steroids and they've, they've opened them in Phoenix, Philadelphia, Dallas, and Orlando. Very cool. Yeah. Prime now are very small. So they have like uh, 20,000 items. Yeah. 5,000 square feet. Yeah. Um, interesting. So, you know, it almost feels like the next phase of prime one day is prime same day. So yeah. feels like they're, they're laying the groundwork for that under the guise of it. That'd be the ultimate kind of a head fake is, you know, tell wall street, they're continuing with prime one day. And then at, you know, it becomes prime same day without a huge amount of new investment. That would be interesting. Yeah. And part of me, and I may have this wrong, but I, I sort of imagine there that those two things are almost synergistic that essentially they said like, Hey, uh, to to honor our one day, we need to stay. You know, it, it's it's more cost effective to stage the most popular items closer to the customer, um, and so they they sort of design these new fulfillment centers to to uh, increase profitability and service level for the 
Amazon Prime one day. Um, and then as they did that, they go, oh, and by the way, there's a subset of customers that we can have an even better service level now that we've done this, right? And so why wouldn't we offer, uh, you know, faster same-day delivery uh, to customers whom we can? Yeah. Very uh, cool. Yeah. So, so yeah, those are, I guess, were my last little Amazon tidbits. Cool. So let's, uh, I brought up the coronavirus. Let's, let's kind of talk about that because it's a unpleasant topic, but we, we need to kind of think about how is this going to impact, um, everything for our listeners here. So, uh, first of all, kind of, this is kind of coming in waves, if you will. So when we first heard about this, really the main concern was supply chain. So, um, and, uh, you know, that Apple pre-announcements, when it really kind of caught on to my radar, it was pretty early there. Um, and that's because the virus initiated in China. Um, and if you have a lot of Chinese components, then, you know, it's going to impact you. Um, my initial thought was there's a lot of Chinese stuff sold on Amazon. I wonder how they're going to get impacted. Um, but one of my, uh, uh, one of my favorite analysts, Colin Sebastian, he actually kind of said, you know, because they have this marketplace, there's always multiple offers from those products. So it's almost kind of like, you know, you don't really have a single source. So, so by having the marketplace model, Amazon in an interesting way has almost kind of de single point of failure its supply chain. Whereas, you know, Am Apple conversely has because of the components and controlling the complete verticalization of everything, um, they they have a lot of single points of failure in China. So, so that was interesting. And then he also mentioned. Um, he actually kind of came out and came out with a list of uh, companies that would be hit the most from this. But then uh, what I want to talk about is the ones that would do best. And Amazon was on that list. So it was very counterintuitive to what I was thinking. Um, and his argument was also on there was like Peloton, Netflix, uh, obviously Zoom, some of those you, you kind of thought about. Um, but his whole idea is that uh, based on what we've seen in other countries, when there is a large outbreak, pe people go into, he calls it cocoon mode. Um, so that's an interesting theory is, you know, if, if people are having to kind of self quarantine on their houses uh, to avoid being in crowds, what does that mean? And his whole point is, well, you're going to still need stuff. You're not going to want to go to the grocery store where, you know, presumably people have been in there touching all the products and things. You're going to want a cleaner supply chain to your house, which means more e-commerce, which is benefits Amazon. So I thought that was an interesting take. Yeah, no, for sure. And I feel like the, the, the most like, uh, Direct example is, yeah, so it's great for Peloton and it's bad for SoulCycle, right? Like you don't want to go to a physical place and take a class with 30 other people, um, but you'd rather work out at home. And in that case, once you buy a Peloton, you're locked into the Peloton. So it's not like you just forgot, you, you, you know, you skip something for a month and then you're going to go back to it after the um, the the virus abates. Uh you know, if you're you, you you in many cases uh, go through a one way door to make some purchase decision to do something at home versus uh, out in public. And, and so, like, it could have some long term impacts. Um, and there 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 are just all these angles to this. But like I, I'm with you, the, the first announcements, uh, coronavirus started showing up in a bunch of earnings reports and it wasn't retailers it was manufacturers and the interesting thing was it was ones that obviously have supply chain dependencies like like apple that makes a lot of their product in in china um but it was also like companies that make their product in the u.s are still dependent on ingredients from china so i want I, it was like coca-cola is made in the u.s 
but it uses aspartame that's made in China. Uh, and so, it, you know, not surprising in the global economy, um, we the the uh, the the world supply chain is very dependent on China um so potential impact there and a you know just a ton of factories uh shut down they're actually starting to open up again um but uh i think the interesting thing is this kind of juxtaposition that uh some business like in some ways this benefits businesses right so in the US right now um where the the fear probably outpaces the real risk um, you have a lot of, quote, aggressive shopping, unquote, and all these retailers are selling four times as much uh, paper towels and disinfecting wipes and hand sanitizer as they ever have before. And some retailers have now said that the 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 sales increases there will be material, um, which is interesting, uh, comma, they all have lean supply chains and they're all running out of that stuff. And so I kind of feel like, like uh there's a pro and a con to that um but then uh our friends at Coresight did a survey and asked a bunch of customers if their shopping behaviors might change as a result of uh concerns over coronavirus um and not shockingly a significant percentage of customers um said like 25% said they already uh are avoiding going to public places um, and 50% said that they definitely would if things got worse. Um, and so, you know, the, the premise is if you're a mall owner, um, you know, this this is certainly bad for you. A bunch of retailers have said they've already started to see um, persistent uh, traffic declines. Uh, if you're a retailer at an airport, you've already been decimated because uh, air travel's way down. And so the, the traffic to those airport stores um is way down um but then again the cocooning could potentially be an upside for some businesses so if you're a uh launching a digital grocery service um and your biggest problem is that a significant portion of the US uh consumers haven't tried ordering their groceries online yet um you know it it probably is pretty appealing if you're afraid to go to the supermarket uh because of all the people there it's probably pretty appealing to try your first delivery order. And if that is a good experience for you, um, you, you might be inclined to, to use that service regularly. And, uh, Scott, I don't know if you knew this, but there's kind of a precedent for that. Um, so the second largest e-commerce site in China, uh, is, uh, of course, JD.com. JD.com basically exists, uh, because of the SARS epidemic in China. Um, so, so prior to SARS, uh, Xingdong Trading Company is selling CD-ROM drives uh, at Electronics Bazaars in Shanghai. And when SARS hit, uh, all these bazaars closed, and um, the the founder of Xingdong Trading uh, had a bunch of inventory of these CD-ROM drives he couldn't sell. Um, and so because there was this kind of prolonged quarantine uh, he started trying to sell the CD-ROM drives on bulletin boards and was so successful in doing that that he launched a website, JD.com. And they've, of course, become one of the biggest e-commerce players in the world. I did not know that. Yeah. So who knows? Potentially there will be some new businesses emerging from this sort of temporary cocooning. Um, and the the other category that I feel like is going to like potentially be decimated by this is 
the on-premise restaurant business because they they've already been under a lot of stress. Uh, consumers are are consuming a lot more restaurant meals off-premise. They're mostly getting delivered by these these uh, delivery marketplaces, and the the economics for the restaurants themselves are horrible when this happens. Um, but now, if if uh, people are cocooning more and going out less, they're they're likely to order even more meals uh, for home delivery, and that's that's going to be a disaster for the on prem restaurant business. Cool. How about um, I know you were bummed that some of the events were canceled too. Yeah, there's a little controversy there. So like the uh, for for those of us in the industry, like uh, this is a busy event time of the year, and so there, you know a number of big events have been canceled. Google and Facebook both canceled their developer conferences. Uh, Adobe just canceled their big customer um, co- uh, uh, conference in Las Vegas, and we're we're about two weeks away from Shop Talk, which is a you know one of the best shows in our industry, is still scheduled to go on in Las Vegas. And I'll be honest, I'm I, I'm grateful I'm not one of the event organizers, and I'm super curious what they're going to do because it's increasingly looking like it's not going to be viable to have this show. Like tons of attendees and speakers work for companies that are that are limiting, you know, non-essential travel, um, and I'm sure a lot of people just have concerns over you know traveling to a a big event in in Las Vegas. So it's going to be interesting to see whether we have a shop talk this year or not. Yeah, yeah. The uh, we will see. Are you going? Uh if they have it, I probably will go. Um w- you know, we we will have to see like uh I, it is funny if you remember Shop Talk sold this year. So, uh the the, fa- the founder of Shop Talk already seemed super smart, right? Like he had flipped a couple trade shows. He sold Shop Talk for a particularly good valuation. Um and uh you know, he built the uh, a great show. They did a really good job. They grew rapidly for three years and then he sold it. And that already looked brilliant. Now it looks unbelievably brilliant. Genius. <laughs> uh, because the new owner that paid like a pretty rich premium for the show is now stuck in this position. Like, do we give all of our exhibitors their money back or do we try to have a show that, you know, potentially is going to be the worst year ever for the show? Uh, as you may remember, uh, they're doing a novel thing for this show. They're having only female speakers. And so from my perspective, it'll be a tragedy to have only female speakers and then have no one show up because everyone's afraid of the coronavirus. So I just, I just think there's a lot of um, issues tangled up in whether or not, not, not they ha- whether or not they have the show. And I'm, I'm glad it's not my call. Yeah, I wonder how – so, so you know, at Channel Advisor we do a show and you commit, uh, you know, years in advance and you, you spend a lot on the show and you have to guarantee hotel rooms. I wonder, I wonder if a viral outbreak is, is kind of a reason to be able to get out of that. Yeah. So I don't know if they're contractually obligated to, but from a, a a goodwill standpoint, most companies are having to let customers out of their commitment. So um, the, I mean, I had a non-refundable room for, for Adobe and uh, they, they refunded that like, Adobe basically sells out the Venetian and the Palazzo. And so I imagine those hotels are going to be empty now um, because they, you know, they, they weren't marketing rooms to other people for the, that week. Um, And I'm sure shop talk would be the same problem at Mandalay Bay. Uh, United airlines just announced that, you know, uh, 
they're waiving all change and cancellation fees, and they're they're actually cutting back their schedule. So all these travel and hospitality companies, you know, are really bearing the brunt of the cost for this. So it it's a it's a mess. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be interesting. The um, you know, we don't really talk about travel on the show, but uh, it will kind of you know, ripple to our world because Google has pretty high concentration of travel advertisers. The social media guys, I think are pretty small. I, I would guess, I think Google is like in the 15 to 20% range. They have kind of four or five verticals that are each 20% retail being one of them. Uh, maybe politics, you know, there's kind of a weird thing that it actually could be okay that it's a political year. Maybe that'll help. But it's going to be interesting to see how, how these things ripple out into other places. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And obviously not not something that people planned or budgeted for. Cool. Another news item I wanted to get your opinion of as our resident Walmart guy is this Walmart Plus uh, kind of Amazon Prime killer. I, I can't tell. It feels underwhelming, but uh, I wanted to see if there was something I missed there. Yeah. Uh, so side note, you're calling me the Walmart guy, but you're the one that camps out um, – Overnight to get the new Star Wars toys at, at Walmart. Yeah, but I've been to Bentonville once. How many times have you been? Yeah, more than once. Um, <laughs> a fair point. Yeah, so Walmart had a, a number of interesting announcements in the last two weeks. So you're right. Um, Walmart did not announce a new uh, Amazon Prime competitor, but some uh, news apparently leaked. Um, and, uh, so I think, uh, originally Vox recode had an article and now a bunch of other people had articles and Walmart kind of confirmed that the, the basic details of the article were, were accurate. Um, but the news was that Walmart was adding a monthly subscription program that sounds somewhat like, um, uh, Amazon prime. And, uh, in fact, it's called Amazon or Walmart plus. Um, and so, uh, Again, Walmart didn't do a real announcement, so we don't really know what's in Walmart Plus yet. Uh, the speculation was, at a minimum, that they had sort of free home grocery delivery. Um, the um, And there, there was like some speculation that there are a bunch of other potential services Walmart could be bundling in that. In a, a separate announcement, Walmart opened a number of health clinics. Um, which is a, a new major initiative for Walmart. And so there, there is some speculation that health services could be bundled in this. Uh, we, we don't know yet. So it'll be interesting. Like, I, I guess I'm on the bubble. Um, I think it's really smart for a retailer to evolve into an ecosystem and have a sticky membership program. And obviously, Prime is the, the most economically successful membership p- program in the history of Earth. Um, but another retailer, Costco, has, you know, pretty close to the second most successful membership program. So, uh, you know, it's smart for Walmart to want to have a really successful program. So in that sense, like I'm encouraged that they're doing something. Uh, it, it It's hard to imagine what it could be that's go- that's going to stack up favorably to, to Amazon Prime. So I guess that's my fear. Like I, I'm going to reserve judgment until I see what's in it. But I hope what they do is something very different than Prime instead of just trying to do a Me Too version of Prime because I kind of feel like that would that would be uh, uh, a day late and a dollar short. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did bundle uh, in that same week. Some other news came out. So I thought you might be more excited 
uh, Walmart at Etel, Walmart officially launched a Walmart fulfillment service. So they call that a WFS, uh, which is their version of Amazon's FBA. Um, and uh, this very much sounds like a Me Too offering compared to Amazon. But I would argue here it's a smart and necessary one. Um, Walmart has been, you know, pretty open about its aspirations to to develop a serious, successful marketplace. Um, and to me, it feels like like table stakes for a really successful marketplace is uh, you have to help all those sellers with fulfillment so that you can have a high service level and you can kind of match uh, uh, Amazon Prime one day. And and the only way you're going to do that is if you fulfill the goods for uh, for the sellers. And so this this was not shocking news, but but like a pretty important evolution in the marketplace at Walmart. Do you? you sort of agree, Scott, or do you think it's not necessary at this point? I do. Um, you know, when you don't have, when you have kind of a, what I call a hybrid marketplace with 1P and 3P, and the 1P experience is just typically so much better than the 3P experience because third parties generally are smaller businesses. They don't have the same shipping infrastructure. So, so you know, having that fulfillment by, or the in this example, Walmart fulfillment services as this middle ground you know, I'd say it, it brings the customer experience that much closer, uh, and and that's what you want to have a vibrant marketplace. You want it you want it so similar that the customer doesn't pause and say, "Oh, this is from a third party that's going to take a lot longer or come in a weird box or, you know, the last one I got was all destroyed or came to a carrier I don't like. Whatever it is, those those things kind of chew away at the overall customer experience. So, so I think it'll be good. Yeah. No. And then you know, Walmart has already. Uh, accepts returns for 3p sales in their stores and so i don't think they announced anything but you could imagine walmart leveraging their network of stores like they if they could potentially stage some popular 3p products there like there's all kinds of interesting uh twists on the walmart fulfillment services um if you if you layer in the the 5000 super centers as well as the the walmart's fulfillment centers um, so that's interesting. And then they did also announce uh, kind of the next step in a, a reorganization. Um, like over the last couple of months, they had merged several departments between Walmart.com and Walmart. So instead of having separate teams in Bentonville and San Bruno, um, they had shared responsibilities. But one big function that was still separate was there are separate merchants buying stuff for the website in San Bruno and uh, merchants buying stuff for the stores in Bentonville. And so this month they announced that they're merging the merchandising organizations and having one. So th this is all, to me, like positive steps in breaking down the silos and having a, a single omnichannel organization. Very cool. Speaking of omnichannel, uh, a lot going on in the world of Mulligan. Um, so, you know, it seems like there's a lot of chaos out there. Uh, you mentioned, so, so malls are shaky, just kind of coming out of Q4 still. Uh, and then here we are in Q1 with this, this whole thing that traffic's going to be down to Corona due to coronavirus. Um, what are you seeing going on in, in some of the mall retailers? Yeah. Um, well, I, I feel like there's a bunch of news, like obviously it's retail earnings season. And so like you can look at all the mall retailers there, but some sort of standouts to me, um, uh, Hudson Bay Company, which owns Saks Fifth Avenue, didn't have a a, a very good earnings call. And um, uh, word came out this week that the CEO H Helena Falks is stepping down. 
Um, she was a highly regarded CEO. She was uh, like the CMO of uh, uh, CVS, I think it was, if I'm remembering right, before she stepped into this role. Um, and she she fixed a lot of um, sort of institutional problems at Saks uh, and uh, frankly got rid of a lot of the the ancillary businesses that they were in and really, you know, put the focus on sex. Um, so now she's leaving. Um, and, uh, like one of the investors who's primarily a real estate guy who's been sitting on the board is taking over as CEO. And, you know, from a, a retail practitioner standpoint, like that doesn't feel like a very, um, forward looking, move that you you have the successful retail operator leaving um and you're replacing them with a investor uh real estate type type person you know usually those aren't the people that that uh grow traffic and and profitability in retail organizations so i like that potentially a a a bad sign for for sacks um, and then in other uh, leadership shakeups, uh, Nordstrom, which I, I sometimes call um, the uh, the best of the bad performing department stores, um, they were actually up in terms of same store sales. So they were up one percent at the full the, at the Nordstrom stores, and they were up one point eight percent at the rack stores, um, which was below their guidance and is not very exciting growth. And it's below in, you know the the retail industry average for growth. Um, but compared to most department stores, which are shrinking, um, being up, you know, is, is better. Uh, a, a standout thing for me in their earnings is their digital was up 9%, which is way below the industry average. So, like, you don't see that very often. Um, we joke that the industry average has to be wrong because it seems like every retailer on the planet claims to have bigger growth than the 14% uh, that the U.S. Department of Commerce says. So in Nordstrom's case, they're saying, hey, we only grew 9%. That's pretty surprising for someone that we think of as a, a kind of best-in-class digital department store. Um, and I, I don't know what the full story is, but part of it, I'm sure, is that Nordstrom is more digitally mature, and they do you know, have 35% of all their sales are digital. So you know, it's, maybe it's a little bit of a law of big numbers that it's Hard to grow as fast when you already have significant digital sales. Um, but out of that earnings call, they announced a little bit of a leadership change. Uh, they had had two CEOs, a co-CEO thing. They had the two Nordstrom brothers, uh, Pete and Eric. Um, and and they announced this week that Eric would be this, the sole CEO and that Pete would act as president and chief brand officer. So, um, you know, apparently someone picked their favorite child. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I'm sure that was complicated behind the scenes to, to figure that out. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, uh, they had tried to go private for a while and just couldn't get it done. It yeah. Like. Yeah. The family tried to bring it, uh, uh, private and they, yeah, you're right. They, they couldn't come up with a, a sweet enough deal apparently. Um, and then the one that was like the, I would call the biggest news, uh, is Victoria's secret, which is their parent company is L brands. um, the uh they they have a a storied um CEO Les Wexler who's like arguably responsible for uh the success of Abercrombie and Fitch um uh Express for a long time uh, and he's been the CEO of Victoria's Secret for 50 years or uh of L Brands for 50 years um they announced that they were selling uh uh Victoria's Secret 
uh, to a private equity firm or 55% of the equity to Sycamore Partners um, at a, a, a surprisingly low valuation. So $1.1 billion. Um, and, uh, you know, so based on revenue, uh, there was a, a you know, an expectation that the valuation might be considerably higher. You know, Victoria's Secret's really struggled lately because they, you know, their whole marketing shtick is this aspirational, perfect image of beauty. Um, and they they mostly were selling, like, discount bras in stores that were really designed to cater to men. Um, and increasingly, there are all these new, you know, bra companies and direct-to-consumer companies that were, like, way more focused on uh, meeting the needs of the women that actually use the products um, and that had more sort of inclusive marketing strategies. And, you know, that uh, they had a, a particularly dumb CMO at, at Victoria's Secret that, you know, famously said they, they would never have any models that weren't perfect because that's not what women want to think of themselves as. Um, and so the whole, like, Victoria's Secret uh, uh, beauty show and uh, uh, fashion show and all those things kind of, uh, once were were strong marketing tactics had really sort of started to work against them, and so you know they uh, it's it's interesting they had to sell at a pretty low valuation. There was probably a period in the two thousands when they would have uh, you know valued Victoria's Secret at like six or ten billion dollars somewhere in that range. So to only sell at one um, is a pretty big admission of defeat. Um, and uh, I mentioned that next week we'll have an interview with Dave Spector, who's one of the founders of Third Love. Uh, like, arguably, Third Third Love is one of the accelerators of this Victoria's Secret decline. And they, they accidentally got in a, a fight with Victoria's Secret. So they're this small direct-to-consumer company that no one had ever heard of. And that same stupid CMO at Victoria's Secret that, uh, you know, mentioned that they would never have any flawed models also said that they were they were never going to be anybody's third love. They were always going to be everyone's first love, mm. and uh, and that kind of you know prompted this this uh, public spat. And uh, uh, you know, third loves continuing to do really well, and and Victoria's Secret just uh, sold in a fire sale, and Les Wexler had to step down. So uh, kind of interesting uh, that kind of the whole uh, female image thing masked the fact that they also had a bunch of stores in bad malls. Um, that are just dying and that they're, they're primarily sold everything at 30 to 40% off. So just a bunch of traditional mall based apparel challenges in addition to their positioning challenge. And I guess the one thing I would point out is, well, you know, it sucks to have a company that was super valuable and you only sold it for $1.1 billion. I will point out that L Barron's bought Victoria's secret for $1 million in 1982. So if you just look at where you started and where you ended, it's actually a pretty good story. Low basis. If uh, I'll kind of tie it all together with a little bow here. If Anil from Shop Talk had owned Victoria's Secret, he would have sold at the top. Exactly. Um, and congratulations to Anil slash let me know if you need any help carrying your bags to your vacation home. In San Diego. Exactly. Uh, I bet you he's vacationing at even cooler places. Um but, uh, Scott, that's going to be an awkward and perfect place to end it because it's happened again. We've used up all our listeners' time. But as always, if uh, we, we struck a chord or you want to continue the conversation, we encourage you to jump on our Facebook page 
or uh, hit us up on Twitter. Uh, and as always, we really would appreciate that five-star review on iTunes. Um, a ton of listeners have been super generous and written great reviews, uh, but most of you have been listening for so long that we don't get as many new reviews as we used to, and uh, part of uh, Apple's algorithm is freshness. So we need we need some of you longtime listeners to uh, uh, give us the 30 seconds and jump over to iTunes and write that review. Yeah, thanks for listening. And uh, also longtime listeners, recruit a new listener and have them leave a review. Even better. Um, and until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 